Welcome back to the Comics Course. This is an offering of Miskatonic University's remote education program offering Literature 209, Graphical Literature in Society and History as a publicly available podcast. You can find all of the social media in the show, co uh, show notes. This includes TikTok, uh, the YouTube version, the Twitter account, all that kind of jazz. And in the not-too-far future may include a merchandise store. Ooh. So you can get your own comics course t-shirt um anal beads i mean whatever i don't know what their options are i don't know folks uh but today the only anus we're talking about is the one that probably gets cut out of people because we're back to from hell actually i don't think that was ever cut out of any of the victims but you know i needed a transition there and as always suffering through my transitions is my ta rowan say hello rowan hello and i am professor hamby we are chugging through From Hell. What do you think of it so far, Rowan? Uh, interesting. Still enjoying it. You're still enjoying it? Now, mm -hmm. I know you're a true crime fan, mm -hmm. and this kind of staggers an unusual border between mm -hmm. true crime and fiction, mm -hmm. because it very much is true crime, mm -hmm. um, with a lot of research, but obviously liberal fiction as well. Yeah. Does that bother you at all? No. No. Okay. So... As always, Alan Moore begins his chapter with some quotes. I'm going to read a couple of them here because they're relevant. One I'll skip over because I just think it's tosser stuff. The first one is from the Whitechapel Demon, which was an article published in a magazine called The Astrologer in December of 1888. So this would have been a time period when things seemed to have gone quiet and maybe there wouldn't be any more murders, but who knows? They didn't know for sure. Maybe January would turn around of 1889 and suddenly there'd be new murders. How does this diabolical monster succeed in his infernal work time after time in the midst of teeming millions of individuals, every one of whom would be only too glad to discover him and to be the means of bringing him to justice? But no one out of all these multitudes so far as they are aware, ever get a glimpse of him. These things to our mind are most astounding, and apart from astrology, all are altogether inexplicable. Dun, dun, dun. Dun. And in fact, there is good reason to believe that several people got glimpses of the Ripper uh, talking to his victims, mm -hmm. but it turns out that human witnesses, especially on a dark Whitechapel street, are not very reliable. Who would have known? Right. So the next one's a little different. If I were a tailor, I'd make it my pride, the best of all tailors to be. And if I were a tinker, no tinker beside, should mend an old kettle like me. Now, this is from William Withy Gull, a biographical sketch by Theodore Dyke Ackland. And he claims in that that it was a favorite rhyme of Dr. William Gull who, of course, here is the Ripper. And it, it is about making things, mending things, building things, which is what the fictional version of Dr. Goal is trying to do here. And this chapter 10 is entitled The Best of All Tailors, from that rhyme. And we open very simply with the date, as we usually do in location, 13 Miller's Court, November the 9th, 1888, and what I think is a brilliantly composed panel by Eddie Campbell, 
we see the room, Mary Kelly's room, and just the silhouette of Goal with a little bit of definition for his absolutely monstrously huge sideburns, which were a fashion of men at the time. And he just walks in. And the person is awake in the room. Huh? Hello? Hello? What? Oh no, murder! Help! And then he slices her throat. Now, unlike previous occasions, he is not using Netley for help here. Netley does not want to help him anymore. Netley is kind of against his own reason, still driving Gull around, but actually holding people down for murder, Netley has drawn a line. He will be an accomplice and an enabler, but not provide the physical labor. Um, so, you know, Netley, Taco Bell's waiting for your application. That's all I'm saying. That got you, huh? Mm-hmm. So as we go here, we, we just have pages of no dialogue, but methodical action. A goal takes his time and very slowly dismembering her. Now, this is all pretty much direct history. I mean, not that it was Gull himself, but we do know that a window was broken and a key lost in Mary Kelly's room. Mm-hmm. We do know that two people who lived in the same building as her claim that they heard somebody yelling murder between 3.30 and 4 a.m. Mm-hmm. Now, back then, forensics was not terribly precise about things like time of death. Uh, you know, when the body was found and they started looking at it, they basically said that they believe she was killed within the last 12 hours. Which is a big window. Right. But... That three thirty four o'clock, certainly in that time period, because the body was found, uh, I believe, around noon. That sounds about right. And one of the sad things is, it was found not by somebody coming to check on her or somebody worried, but by the landlord because she was behind on rent. That's sad. Yeah, and I really have to provide a trigger warning here. The pages are gruesome. Goal is taking his time and cutting off her breasts, ripping her flesh apart. It is just absolutely disturbing. And he fires up the kettle and makes the room hot and puts things in the kettle. And again, there is some history here. We know the room was hot. The fire burned very uh, hot for a long time based on how it actually deformed the kettle. And some people have said this points to an argument that this wasn't the Ripper. Because EMO is different. It's not out in the street and not done quickly. While others say, well, this is a sort of natural evolution of the style. And we do know that psychopathic killers tend to escalate over time. Mm -hmm. And while the original motivation may not change, elements of their modus operandi may change. So, for example, this type of killer probably would not stop cutting up the bodies. Mm-hmm. That That's a stylistic change they wouldn't do. But evolving to use a room and take their time doing it, that absolutely is the sort of thing we've mm-hmm. seen historical killers uh, uh, do over time mm-hmm. as their techniques get refined. And as they can get away with more and more. Right. And as Gull goes along here, it, it's 
I don't know what to say. It, it's brutal. Um, if you are squeamish about these things, it is worth passing about three or four pages here very quickly. Now, something happens as Gull is doing this. Time is beginning to collapse on him. Now, he has met the Godhead. There's a mystic ritual being invoked. A 14-year-old kid who's going to become Aleister Crowley even figured it out. Um, which might be kind of Moore's little backhand joke at the police who were mocked. <laughs> mm -hmm. Apparently they should have had sorcerers on staff at Scotland Yard in the 1880s. <laughs> then they would have... Well, I mean, I guess they did. They had plenty of Freemasons, but they were in on it. Yeah. So, all right. Uh, but the person who shows up is Hinton. Now, we haven't seen Hinton for a good long time here, uh, but Hinton, and Hinton has passed away now. But Hinton was the colleague of Gull, and this is actual history, whose son wrote a pamphlet about the fourth dimension, time, and how it could be measured and things like that in relationship to space-time and proposed some mathematical arguments that were later influential for thinkers on this topic. So there is an irony, of course, that, you know, the father of the author of one of the first pamphlets about space-time is who shows up as time is collapsing in on itself and the future and past are merging into this one point that's an important thing to understand that within the context of this story the future and past are merging together so gold continues his just grotesque work and he begins sliding back and forth between his past of doing uh examinations of corpses in order to illustrate surgical practices for classes of students with what he's doing in this room. And yeah, and everything is just grotesque and terrifying and dark. And you think to yourself, I just am having trouble understanding this when suddenly one panel is overlaid with some a, a vaguely Mesoamerican uh, art style, or maybe it's meant to be more Sumerian and uh, ancient Middle East, but his place over this body is now taken by a priest over a sacrifice, which, of course, in his mind is what he's doing. And he finds this extraordinary, and indeed says several panels later, settling it for us, that the art was meant to be Babylonian. And he says, Babylon, the myth of Tiamat and Madruk. Extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. So he's merging with the Godhead. And so, you know, while he's congratulating himself on, you know, sacrificing Tiamat, and suddenly everything changes. And she's still on the bed where he's cutting her up, but now the bed is in the middle of a 1980s-era office place. Complete with... Somebody, presumably a woman from her shape, having a sort of flock of seagulls haircut. Um, which she really should run away from. <laughs> That's right, 80s music joke, folks. Because I can't read this much about dismemberment without at least resorting to a few bad jokes. Um, and I really don't want to sit here for 20 minutes describing panel by panel the gruesomeness. It's, you know, no. But anyway, so now he has this dismembered body on a bed in the middle of a modern office place. And he just looks around in horror and goes, oh dear God. Now remember, a moment ago he flashed back to ancient Babylon doing sacrifices and was kind of like, 
Yeah. yeah I'm feeling this. I'm feeling this. I'm kind of the man. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm getting some big dick energy from this. Mm-hmm. But now looking at the modern office place, he's appalled. And he breaks into this just absolutely brilliant soliloquy from Alan Moore. Now, I have tried to identify if this soliloquy is from anywhere, but as far as I can tell, it's not. If anybody is aware of it being barred from somewhere, I'd love to know. But he walks around, apparently, as far as unseen by these people, and he says, Dear God, what is this a tear I am come upon? What spirits are these laboring in what heavenly light? No. No, this is a dazzle, but not yet divinity. Nor are these heathen wraiths about me spirits lacking even that vitality. What then? Am I like St. John the Divine, Valsh, fed a glimpse of these last times? Are these the days my death shall spare me? So this is the future he's creating. And he's looking at it going, this is awful. And not just because they're wearing leg warmers in the 80s. Um, but he looks around and he says, these people don't seem to be alive. And, and this is part of Alan Moore's point, that people aren't really alive anymore. The future that was built is bloodless. So here he is cutting this woman up with blood, the essence of vitality, spilling out of her, powering the spell, which has enabled these overlaps in time-space. And it is the very essence. Remember, the beginning of the last chapter talked about blood as the thing that brings things to substance that can't normally be in this world. Spirits and things like that. And so it has done that. It has brought spirits of the future closer to this world. And what he sees of this future he's created is that it's sterile. It has no vitality. And he continues his dial, his monologue. It would seem we are to suffer an apocalypse of cockatoos, morose, barbaric children playing joyously with their unfathomable toys. He says this as somebody is clicking the end of a pen repeatedly, and they're at their computers. Where comes this dullness in your eyes? How has your century numbed you so? Shall man be given marvels only when he is beyond all wonder? So, I mean, they're in front of these things. And I, I, I'm, I'm guilty of periodically saying this. You know, I look at my phone and go, we live in the age of science fiction. I still find it amazing. Um, Your days were born in blood and fires, where if in you I may not see the meanest spark. Your past is pain and iron. Know yourselves with all your shimmering numbers and your lights think not to be inured to history, its black root suckers you. It is inside you. Are you asleep to it? And he goes on. I'm not going to read all of it in detail. Uh, there are several pages of it. It's very good. And there's, I, I think, a kind of funny uh, uh, part where this guy who's been murdering prostitutes and being... As invasive with them bodily as you can be, literally his hands up inside of them, looks at this woman walking around in a dress and tights, you know, 80s office attire, and is like, what a whore! How dressed like that? That is awful! Like, I don't think you're in a position to judge anybody, dude. Mm-mm. Um, And he looks around, and he's just appalled, 
and he lays down on top of the corpse that he is ripped open and torn parts off of and hugs the bloody mass to him. Because this is his world, the world of blood. The the world of spirit. And he is, for all of his faults, including being uh, a sociopathic. Hmm? A murderer. A, a murderer, uh, a sociopath, perhaps a psychopath. Um... He is also an intelligent man and somebody who is willing, who, who is full of, pa- of, of sort of passion mm-hmm. to do what he believes is right, even if that belief comes from being completely batshit nuts, mm-hmm. which he most certainly is. Uh, and just a bad person in general. Mm-hmm. So he continues to have these slippings through time, including talking to the man who was the head of the Freemason Order when he was inducted. Uh, I didn't go over that in the course, but it popped up in earlier chapters. But here comes an an interesting one. So he's looking up through some fingers that are held over his head, over his face, probably his own hand. And somebody's saying, Come on, Tommy. Poor old bugger. Look, it's coming in his face. Must be something, Tom. Come on, Tom. Tommy, you know us. And we just see these figures standing over him. And he goes, no, I don't know you. I'm not Tom. I'm not Jack. I'm William. And then he's back in the room. This will come up again later, this identity issue. Um, remember, he didn't choose the name Jack the Ripper. The From Hell letter did. But he had Netley sign the Dear Boss letter Jack the Ripper. He took that name for himself when he did that and is now denying it. He is effectively now denying his own labors. Now, in natural history, we don't know if the Jack the Ripper did the Jewish graffiti. Um, But here, within this story, we know that William Gold did. And, of course, what is one of the great criticisms that many of these Christian groups have had of Jewish people is that they claim that their prophet came along, Jesus of Nazareth, and they denied him. Mm-hmm. And now here is Gaul denying the labor of the Godhead himself. He has come full circle into being guilty of everything he has accused others of mm-hmm. um, and, and turning his back on it. And yet everything fades, the, the vitality has run out, and time is separating back again, and he tears the woman's heart out and holds it up just with sheer exuberance in his face. <sighs> He's back. And he throws it into the fire, and the fire explodes in light. Just light emanates out of the room. It looks almost like lasers blasting out of the room, and he's blinded. And then that moment passes and it becomes ash. Again, another moment of blood sacrifice and magic in Alan Moore's writing. Gull collects the ashes, goes outside, throws them to the wind. Gull wakes Netley up, who's been sitting out on the coach, and says, I'm done. And now he needs help. Now that his moment of mania has passed, he's an old man again, and Netley has to help him up onto the carriage. 
And that is the chapter. What do you think as we're going through this, Rowan? I, I, I don't know. It's, it, it's grim and dark. And it's creepy. And it feels like he's getting more insane. Yeah, and it's a hard chapter. And I don't want to combine two chapters on this because I know some people that listen to the uh, courses uh, read along. And I don't... This chapter is dark enough that I don't want to layer multiple uh, uh, hits of this kind of thing in one sitting, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But I do want to point a few things out for people. There is something I did not say during this whole episode. Mm -hmm. And it relates to something that I said last episode would come up. I thought in this episode, but I misremembered the events of chapters, it's... Next chapter, actually, um, where I said I had previously in the po- in the core podcast course lied. Mm. So what did I lie about intentionally in order to preserve a surprise? And what did I not talk about in this episode? Those two things will come together in the next chapter. So I will leave you with that. Uh, also, as I record this, I can't recall if this is dropping right before June starts or right after June starts. But our Off From Hell episodes in June are all going to be focused on LGBTQ uh, issues. Mm-hmm. And it's only going to be about four episodes because it's only a month long. So I certainly can't touch all the diversity of topics out there because uh, LGBTQ plus and, you know, there, there's a lot of different stuff out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some things are easier to you know, I just had things I really wanted to talk about because I think they're amazing. And there's other amazing stuff out there I'm not going to get to. So I do want to encourage people, if you have a graphic lit work that you think I should cover by the end of the month that I haven't, uh, it's, you know, for example, I don't have a representative work on asexuality and aces. Mm-hmm. Um, I may not make it into Pride Month coverage, but... I'm willing to cover these things all year round because I think diversity is important in representation. Mm-hmm. Um, so feel free to drop me a line if you think there's something out there I should have covered that I didn't. Because Lord knows there's more available than I could possibly cover in four episodes. Mm-hmm. All right. So that's it for today. Keep reading comics. And we'll Bye. be back real soon. Bye.